Hello and welcome to Foxed, the new practical podcast series from Fox & Partners. In these podcasts, we'll be looking at scenarios from our day-to-day practice, offering solutions to some of the most pressing partnership and employment law questions we hear from our clients. Our goal is to offer a digest of some of today's key issues in a succinct and practical style that we hope you'll find useful and engaging. Thanks for listening. Hello, listeners. In this next instalment in our series of podcasts, David Reed QC dropped in to discuss the implications for partners in LLPs of the Supreme Court judgment in Uber. Uh, David's a leading silk in commercial employment and partnership law at the highly regarded Littleton Chambers in London and someone often in the mix of the leading cases of the day. In this special guest podcast, we'll have a look at the wider impact of the Uber judgment outside of the realm of the gig economy. And we'll discuss why firm management should be considering its implications. Uber might have reached the end of the road, but maybe the navigation system is only beginning to boot up when it comes to the status of partners. Uh, I hope you enjoy the podcast. So it's a warm welcome to Foxed, our podcast series. David, I hope you're well and thriving. I am. Thank you. Very good. David, we're going to have a look today at the implications of Uber in the context of partnerships and LLPs. And I think it's fair to say there are some fairly knotty issues to work through, but we'll discard the anoraks today and focus on some less obvious but potentially significant implications outside of the gig economy. So Uber then, let's get straight to it. Uh, We know it's the go-to status case. Uh, David, perhaps you could maybe start by just setting the scene a little bit and explaining uh, maybe what Uber tells us generally uh, and what has changed uh, following Uber as to the approach uh, we must take to the issue of employment status. Thank you, Ivor. Yes, it may seem slightly surprising to begin with that a case involving a transportation system or cab service has any relevance towards the world of partnership, but I think that it does. And just to set that context, to understand what Uber was about. Um, It's worth remembering that if you look at any set of relationships which are in the field of employment or self-employment, and self-employment in that context, including uh, partnership, traditional law, um, LLP membership, there are three categories. those three categories were very specifically recognised, if one will recollect, in Bates van Winkelhoff. One has the traditional classic employee, a contract of service, uh, at one extreme. And at the other extreme, one has someone who is genuinely engaged in business uh, on their own account, or indeed as part of a partnership engaged in business on their own account, who's self-employed. And then we have that intermediate category of workers where there are certain rights and protections afforded uh, to the intermediate group. And that, of course, we know from Bates van Winkelhoff is something that extends to to partners uh, under terms of an LLP agreement or other members. Now, the point about uh, Uber is that the drivers in Uber, they weren't asserting that they were employees. They were asserting that they were in that intermediate category of workers. So to that extent, you think it's really covering old ground that's already been traversed in Bates von Winkelhoff. But the importance of Uber is in the question of approach. Uh, Obviously, people look to draft and define relationships in a way that puts them in one particular category or another. And Uber's case was that the categorization of the individuals was properly seen as being self-employed. And the approach of the Supreme Court was to take a further step beyond the earlier decision of Autoglens, where it was said that if the written documentation 
didn't uh, accurately reflect the true relationships, a wider position could be looked at. Uh, but it all appeared from AutoCleanse that it was necessary, firstly, to start with the contract and then consider whether or not it accurately reflected the reality. But the approach in Uber is really not to start with the contract, but to start with the reality of the relationships and to consider, and it's important to see this in context, that Uber was looking at statutory protections. It was perceiving it as being a question of statutory interpretation. But to look at the relationship and then consider whether or not it fell within the statutory protection. And in terms of the contractual labels or drafting, that's rather uh, relegated to the extent that in the legislation that Uber was particularly concerned with, national minimum wage and working time, um, there are provisions that prevent you contracting out of those rights, and the Supreme Court relied on that as reflecting a view that statute was concerned with extending its protection to the reality of the relationship rather than the labels or structure that the documents might put on it. Uh, and just pausing to note that although the um, claimants in Uber were asserting uh, worker status in the intermediate sense, the same logic from Uber logically must apply across to those asserting employment protection rights, such as unfair dismissal, where the same statutory regime of protection operates and the same exclusions from, um, from contracting out of those rights. So I can see, and this is really your point, uh, Ivor, that it's the go-to case on status, that anyone who's going to be asserting that they're an employee for statutory protection purposes or a, a worker uh, for the wider protection rights um, is going to be going to the Uber case and saying the starting place is looking at the reality of the relationship. Is there control? Is there direction? Am I agreeing to serve in return for remuneration? And the minute you recognise that, you can see that coming across to the world of partnership where there are issues, to an extent as yet unresolved, um, uh, and I'll address that just in a moment, our debates from Winkelhoff, about the true nature of a relationship, Uber's going to be an important case. You, you, you mentioned um, Bates Fall and Winkelhoff there, that we, we know from that case that you, you can't be an employee um, and a partner of the same firm. Partners can employ themselves, essentially. And we also know following the Reinhard and Andre case that you can't be a member of an LLP and an employee of the same firm. But what about the issue sort of canvassed and, uh, and Van Winkelhoff? Uh, do you think Uber might change the view of worker status in traditional partnerships? I think it has to. But I think there's a hanging question left in Bates Van Winkelhoff by the Supreme Court, which they didn't need to go to. The traditional rationale for why you couldn't be employed by a partnership of which you were a partner was that you couldn't employ yourself and um, that line runs back to an old line of case law back to the 19th century but the point was argued in that case that as a result of changes made in the in the 1920s it was possible to contract with yourself if you were contracting yourself as part of a multi-party contract so i could be both a tenant and a landlord if in fact I was one of a number of tenants contracting with myself as landlord. And the point was made that those statutory changes had really 
remove the rationale for not being employed by your own partnership. And that point's noted in the Supreme Court in Bates, but because they were only concerned with statutory protections based around that um, intermediate category of worker, it wasn't necessary for you actually to be a, a true employee, the Supreme Court didn't express an opinion on it. So there remains an argument that actually the proposition that it's no longer possible to be an employee of uh, a partnership of which you're a partner or indeed an LLP of which you are a member may not hold good and Uber may be another step in an argument to run that case based upon the reality of the relationship particularly when the truth is that if one looks at say a fixed share partner or a fixed share member who really has no true risk involved in the gain or loss of the partnership and may have virtually no articulated rights in the partnership decisions that actually they look much closer to an employee than they do to the traditional model of partner yeah but the fixed share partner scenario is might be the most interesting and practical issue to really tackle because most people who enter into partnership for the first time are designated a salary partner or increasingly commonly a fixed share partner not a full equity partner there are significant numbers of this kind of partner in professional practice and you know the partnership agreement usually establishes that remuneration is payable out of profits irrespective of profitability the fixed share could be a cap on profits or a, a guaranteed fixed sum all of that depends on the wording and interpretation of the agreement but in reality, most of those individuals have very little say in the decision making of the partnership. They're subject to the direction of probably a very small management team. And, you know, one might wonder in those circumstances uh, whether they might wish to treat themselves as an employee, frankly, having all of the disadvantages of partnership, but perhaps none of the advantages in their particular circumstances. So do you think any of those individuals might have a better shot of arguing they are in fact an employee and really what would be the advantage of doing so? Well, number one, I think they do have a better shot in the light of Uber and it's fair to say that you can see that there's a marginal distinction between someone who's a, a traditional employee, let's say a senior associate of a law firm, who's then invited to step over the threshold to become a member, but in fact there's a modest change in terms of their remuneration, changing from being what's articulated to be salary to what's articulated as being a fixed share. But their actual powers, autonomy and direction and control all remain the same. So you can see that if you take the Uber approach of looking at the reality of the relationships, there's, there's an advantage there. Is there an advantage for an individual seeking to argue statutory protections around employment? Well, two possibilities spring to mind. Firstly, the possibility that there might be a, that there is an argument that unfair dismissal rights were not lost. So your associate who had 10 years service and redundancy rights steps over the threshold and becomes a member. The argument that, in fact, it hasn't changed their true relationship as being that of an employee for the purposes of statutory protection for unfair dismissal or redundancy. And the other issue, of course, is that with expulsion, we know that 
protections in relation to discrimination and protected disclosure extend to members or partners by the scope of the width of the definition of worker. But one of the things you lack, particularly in the context of um, protected disclosures, is the ability to seek interim relief. That's an urgent tribunal hearing in a public forum to restore you pending a full hearing to your previous employment relationship. And one can see that there might be quite a powerful tool for an expelled member in wanting to bring such a claim, particularly where the LLP may have carefully structured most of its dispute management around arbitration. And that can't be excluded if there is a claim for employment status in the employment tribunal. You wouldn't be able to stop someone at least asserting or bringing that claim. And then there's the prospect of a open hearing on that particular issue. And we know for some, the threat of public determination of issues has a powerful concentrating factor in terms of settlement. So again, I can see expelled or those threatened with expulsion seeing some mileage in these arguments. I agree with all that. A, a fixture partner who is expelled more compulsory retired <coughs> a number of tools in their toolbox to attack that you know there might be issues regarding unlawful exercise of expulsion powers proper procedure express or implied natural justice bad faith and so on however almost always resolved in a private forum with arbitration and i think the the specter of being having uh, all of that ventilated uh, which has to be in a public forum and an interim relief hearing could be something which is a serious bargaining chip for any individual and potentially a risk that many partnerships perhaps don't appreciate might be kind of lurking within the partnership body. So if, if that is a risk, what kind of practical things should we be thinking about to help partnerships? Um, I suppose the starting point is to consider carefully your fixed share partners and the extent to which on the facts, on the evidence, they are in truth employees. But maybe do you think they should be thinking about, I don't know, uh, having some of those or all of those fixed share partners, depending on the context and the constitution and the culture of the, of the partnership, uh, participate in the management of the firm or, or that sort of thing? Because we know the drafting ain't going to do it, so they have to do something else. Yes, so, so I can see force in that in the sense that you need the reality of their involvement to reflect a genuine engagement in business in common and that may be reflected in greater democracy involving the individuals in the decision-making processes of the firm it may involve as we know sometimes for the tax structures greater investment in terms of contribution something to reflect that the reality is one of commonality of business interest mm. uh, engaged on your own account rather than something suggesting that really you are no more than to use a colloquialism a wage slave under a different label. Mm. So perhaps consider the impact of Uber and those arrangements everyone has grown accustomed to, rethink the partnership documentation, view it in the light of Uber and uh, the casting out of any of those terms that uh, would declare an individual to be any particular status. I think again about the arrangements as regards risk management. And David, the firm may wish to ensure the fixed share equity partner has an entitlement to a share in the surplus assets of the LLP in a winding up. I have there in mind the uh, Tiffin and Lester Aldridge case. Uh, that In that case, that um, was a consideration found consistent with partnership status. But that's something that would be 
addressed in the terms of a partnership deed. But do you think that that kind of provision can be distinguished from a term that expressly classifies a partner's legal relationship that we know would be void per Uber? Well, I think it can. I mean, obviously, there's a spectrum which will inevitably look at between a clause that simply says you are not an employee, a bare assertion. And that's the sort of clause which is uh, most likely to be regarded as being ineffectual. And a clause which genuinely defines the structure. Now, obviously, in Uber, one of the arguments had been that the clauses genuinely described the structure uh, and that was rejected. So it's not a guaranteed success. But if you look at something that is defining an interest uh, in the surplus assets and a winding up in an LLP, that would appear to be a direct contractual right consistent following Tiffin and Lester and Aldridge with it being a genuine membership of an LLP relationship and not an employment relationship. So I think having those genuine rights is an important feature if you're trying to make sure that people are truly members and are not going to insert employment relationships. Yeah, so some solutions there, I agree. And David, other benefits of unfair dismissal rights um, conceivably include reinstatement or, or re-engagement, a very rarely used remedy. Do you think there's any um, possibility of, or, or probability of partners um, seeking reinstatement or, or, or re-engagement uh, as employees? Well, um, there are two interesting issues about that. Uh, the first is the issue of employees, well, those who assert their employees, but also assert that the dismissal was connected to protected disclosures because they might seek uh, orders for interim relief in order to establish in a public forum their status outside of the protections of arbitration. But there is always a big incentive in negotiation terms to ask for reinstatement and re-engagement uh, in an unfair dismissal claim not necessarily because one will thinks one will gain it, but because an employment tribunal, if it makes an order for reinstatement or re-engagement, awards arrears of pay from the date of dismissal to mm. that order, that's a way of stepping around the cap on unfair dismissal. So it's quite common for people to articulate in schedules of loss in unfair dismissal cases that they're seeking re-engagement or reinstatement because it enables them to put even an unfair dismissal claim, a schedule of loss which completely outstrips the cap on unfair dismissal claims. So I anticipate that a smart um, fixed share or junior equity partner who asserted employee status and sought to bring an unfair dismissal claim with a schedule of loss will probably ask for reinstatement, re-engagement, even if only to be able to do a schedule of loss that exceeded the amount of the cap on unfair dismissal claims. Quite. And do you think that same smart uh, fixture or junior equity partner might want to challenge their uh, covenants on the basis that uh, the Bridge and Deacons proposition, I think some 35 years vintage now, doesn't apply to them and that their uh, post-termination covenants are likely to be too wide and unenforceable um, because of their status? Yes. Well, of course, we've had this sort of unspoken issue that uh, many people look at Bridge and Deacons and look at the argument that underlied that around protection of the goodwill and, com and, commun 
uh, the communality of the covenants in there and questioned whether or not that really applies to the modern LLP, even for a member of a modern LLP. But if you've got someone who's actually saying either in an LLP or a, a traditional partnership that the relationship is actually one of employment, well, the spectrum would say you're way over to the left on restraint of trade and you have to take the benevolent approach that mm. the courts do in the context of employees of holding quite tightly at the firm to establishing that the covenants go no further than is reasonably necessary uh, to protect legitimate interests. So uh, again, if, if those covenants are broader than an employee would typically have in the circumstances, an employee, sorry, an allegation that someone is an employee might be coupled with an assertion that the clauses are avoid as being in restraint of trade. David, thank you very much for um, all of your comments and thoughts. Uh, I really appreciate that. And hopefully at some point with the uh, sun coming out and the restaurants opening up, we can see each other in three dimensions um, in a normal setting and chat more about these issues. That is something to be hoped for. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and that concludes today's podcast. Uh, we hope you find it useful and engaging. Do get in touch with us via our website or email us at podcast at foxlawyers.com if you have any queries or questions about anything you've heard today. And join us again next month where my colleagues Dean Fuller and Eleanor Diamond will be discussing the right way to jump partnership. Goodbye now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Foxed and we hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe or find out more details on our website at foxlawyers.com.